A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello and welcome. I'm Tim Farron and this is A Mucky Business. It's the show where we get to look at the week in politics through Christian eyes. You might very well think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin. And of course you'd be right. But then again, so is everything else since the fall. And I think Christians should be praying for their brothers and sisters who are in politics in an informed way and should be thinking about politics themselves. This week, we're talking about how much politicians should intervene in family life. Is it a Christian obligation to encourage couples to marry, stay together and spend time with their children? Or is that too naive and dismissive of people in different situations? Well, that's what we're here to discuss. Joining us will be Miriam Cates, the MP for Peniston and Stocksbridge. She's a Christian, she's a Conservative, and she's keen to promote family life and marriage through the tax system and other means. But before we talk to Miriam, here's Cara Bentley with a roundup of some of the news this week. Well, congregational singing is back in England. The seeming inconsistency of the current restrictions with professional choirs and cheering sports fans being able to go about their business as usual has been highlighted even more by the return of theatre-going and the Euros. But on the 19th of July, we may not be singing Three Lions anymore, but churchgoers will be able to sing Amazing Grace again, a rule which is now relaxed in nearly every church in the UK. In other news, the co-leader of the Green Party, Jonathan Bartley, has announced he is stepping down from his role alongside Sean Berry. Before being a politician, he did a year with the Christian outreach group YWAM, studied theology and public life, and then founded the think tank Ecclesia. He told Premier two years ago that although his views have changed on many things, it was his Christian faith that led him to joining the Green Party. He said this week he is hugely proud of what the Greens have achieved in the five years of his tenureship. In the High Court this week, a case begins which will see the Christian campaigner Heidi Crowther argue that the option to terminate a pregnancy any day up until birth when there is a diagnosis of Down syndrome is discriminatory. Abortions are normally not permitted after 24 weeks, but in cases of Down syndrome or some other disabilities, it is legal right up until the last minute. Tim, a similar issue came up in the House of Commons this week. Can you explain why abortion nearly got voted on? Well, yeah, this week in Parliament, a couple of amendments relating to abortion were put to the Crime and Policing Bill. There are so many other issues we could have discussed this week, of course, in particular, the Prime Minister's announcement on the ending of most restrictions on the 19th. So it would have been very easy to dodge the difficult and divisive issue of abortion and talk about all that instead. But of course, many Christians have written to their MPs, including to me, on this issue over the last few days. So let's take a moment to consider these two amendments. In the end, neither amendment was put to a vote. They both fell. They won't become law. The first, effectively, would have decriminalised abortion up to birth. The second attempted to outlaw protests and vigils outside abortion clinics. Just so that you know, I would have voted against the first and abstained on the second. I'll explain why in a moment. But I wouldn't have needed to break my party's whip to vote those ways because we still consider abortion to be a conscience matter. And for that, I am grateful. All the same... The debate on abortion has become so toxic and lacking in understanding of the other side that today people just don't talk about it that much. This is hardly surprising because if you think that unborn children are indeed unborn children, then you will find it very hard to tolerate an argument that permits their termination in the womb. And if you think that abortion is about women having control over their own bodies, you will find it very hard to tolerate an argument that questions that right. It seems to me that both sides can be held guilty 
of dehumanising someone in the story. On the one hand, it doesn't seem right to me that some people make mental contortions to make out that an unborn child is somehow not human. Of course, it makes the pro-choice argument easier if you aren't dealing with a human being, but everyone would be outraged if this language was used about any other category of person. Accepting that an unborn child is a human being does not mean that there is no credible argument in favour of abortion, though, of course, it might make that argument harder to win. But then I see others who are guilty of dehumanising the women involved as their experiences are treated as abstract and unimportant. There seems a lack of concern for the agony and turmoil facing women who consider abortion. In focusing on pleading the humanity of the unborn child, I see too often a relegation of concern for the lives of women who consider to choose abortion. And that leads to a failure to understand the panic and anger felt by those who fear that their access to abortion might be curtailed. And on the matter of the right to protest outside abortion clinics, as a liberal, I want to defend people's right to assemble freely. And I see the amendment that sought to limit that right as unnecessary. But as a Christian, I'm really not convinced that it's effective or compassionate to intimidate women who are already in emotional turmoil. Now, of course, many will say, hey, holding a prayer vigil isn't an act of intimidation. Well, a woman in distress heading into the clinic will probably see that differently. It won't appear to her as a kind act. And let's consider who is meant to be the audience for our prayers. The audience is, of course, God and God alone. So no need to conduct such a vigil for public effect. Anyhow, that's why I settled on an abstention on that issue. You may draw different conclusions, but I'm sure we need to be able to model Christian compassion without condemnation. We can recognise the awful situations that many women considering an abortion find themselves facing while still maintaining that unborn children are undeniably human beings and should have protection as the most vulnerable members of society. There is no way that this issue is not going to be emotive, but it is perhaps our responsibility to seek to recognise the humanity of all involved, to genuinely love and seek to understand others, even if in return we are treated with hostility. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. This week, we're talking about whether it is a Christian politician's duty to uphold and promote family life. How can it be done wisely? Should it be done at all? Our guest this week is Miriam Cates. She's been the MP for Penniston and Stockbridge since 2019. And before that, she studied genetics at Cambridge. After leaving university, she worked for a church. She became a science teacher and then went on to be a, a mum and run a tech business with her husband. Miriam, it's a massive privilege to have you with us. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let's start with the question we tend to ask our guests first, um, and I think listeners are always most interested in this, really. Tell me how you became a Christian. Um, well, I grew up in a Christian family and went to a fantastic church in Sheffield. Lots of Christian friends, um, very much had foundation in the faith from a very young age, which I'm very, very grateful for. Um, and I suppose I never doubted the existence of God or the truth of and the stories in the Bible, um, and as a Christian, had lots of experiences of God as a child. Um, but I suppose in retrospect, although I kind of believed it in my head, I probably never fully accepted it in my heart, and my faith was very much based on that of my parents and those around me. Um, and when I went to university, I started not, not to question the truth of what actually happened in the Bible and, and who Jesus was, but I suppose 
I started to ask, does it really need to be my whole life? Is this, what is the influence on my life? Uh, is it really true that Christians don't have as much fun? They don't go as, as far in careers and things like that. Um, and it wasn't until my final year that I, as you said, I studied genetics, but I ended up writing an essay or dissertation uh, with the title, um, Are, Is God and Science Mutually Incompatible? Uh, I don't, I'm not quite sure why this was part of the genetic syllabus. But anyway, I read a book that was quite a dry academic book. I can't even remember the title, but God really spoke to me through it. Not just that science and God are, are, are perfectly compatible, um, but if you really believe this stuff, if you really believe the gospel, then it has to be your whole life. And I suppose I had a moment a bit like in the Bible where Peter, where Jesus had, gives some hard teaching and some disciples leave and Peter says, um, Lord, to, who, to whom will we go? You know, you have the words of eternal life. And it was that kind of feeling that what else is there? This is the truth. God is the only one I can rely on. He is, you know, I'm safe with him. Um, and I've just got to take that step of faith. And I suppose ever since then, the last, well, however many years, 17 years has been just about getting deeper into that really and surrendering more to God, understanding more that I can trust him and, and follow his lead. Amazing, Miriam. Thank you. And you, you didn't get yourself um, bogged down like some of us fools in student politics. You avoided all that as far as I can tell. Um, you left university, you returned to Sheffield and worked for the local church for a bit. How, what was that like? Yeah, well, I did a, a year out, a gap year course, I suppose. It was a mixture of leadership and discipleship training. Um, and I did some volunteering and community work as part of that. And it was really good because um, although I, it was a great privilege going to Cambridge, it was a very academic, intellectual uh, intense experience and not a spiritual or emotional one for me I know it's different for other people and I really needed that space to just work on my character explore my relationship with God and have some time away from that intensity so that was really good and I met my husband so uh that was a good win-win <laughs> it was a win-win yeah um yeah so that that was really good a really foundational year and I think just having that time out have more time to read the bible to get to know other Christians was really really good your, your journey into politics that found you in Parliament in December 2019 wasn't like lots of people imagine. Um, so at the state at the stage we've just discussed, uh, you got married and you're becoming a, a science teacher. Uh, politics really wasn't on your on your agenda at all, was it? No, I mean, I, um, I was interested in politics from a very early age, from the age of 11. I'm not sure why I started listening to Radio 4. But anyway, I always thought I had no connection to any politicians, no idea how political parties worked. So I always kind of thought if this was something God wanted me to get into, he'd have to open the doors because, you know, as far as I could see, there weren't any opportunities. But yes, I was very involved in village life, got three children involved in their school. I was a parish councillor, uh, doing lots of you know, community work, I suppose. Mm. Um, and when our youngest child was the year before he was due to start school, I started asking God, what's next? Should I go back to teaching? Uh, what, what should I do? And I felt quite a strong lead towards standing to be elected for the city council. Uh, so I realised pretty quickly in Sheffield, the only way to get elected is to join the Labour Party. So I started to look and very briefly and realised that the Labour Party wasn't for me and I probably wasn't for them. Um, so I started to explore the Liberal Democrats and I did nearly join them. But sorry, Tim, I at the last minute, I just felt it wasn't the right thing. Uh, and then, yes, <laughs> and then um, a couple of weeks later, out of the blue, I had a phone call from a family friend who's a local um, conservative. Um, and he didn't know that 
this was on my mind, but he asked me to stand as a Conservative in the local elections. This was 2018 in an unwinnable ward. Um, and at first I thought he'd be a Conservative in Sheffield. Um, but I prayed about it, I thought about it, I asked some wise friends about it. And the feeling was this was a, the obedient thing to do. Uh, and that fruit would come of it, whatever that looked like. So I started knocking on doors and delivering leaflets and I didn't win by any means. I think I came fourth. Um, but I enjoyed the experience and I felt like it was the right thing to try and do it again. Got selected for a different ward. I then ended up at Conservative Party Conference. Uh, my husband encouraged me to go. Uh, very interesting experience. Um, I was only there for 24 hours, but I bumped into lots of people and I ended up uh, being encouraged to put my name on this list, which is the kind of conservative candidates list. And I thought no more about it. But two weeks later, I got a call from um, Conservative Central Office asking me to put my name forward and to go through an assessment to stand in my local seat, Penison and Stocksbridge. Um, thought and prayed about it, went through it. Two weeks later, I was a parliamentary candidate. So it was quite a quick journey and a year later, an MP. Um, so it's a bit of a whirlwind, really. And I guess it's interesting. I mean, it may have felt like God's hand was on you all the time then. But often when you're in the midst of all this, it perhaps isn't quite so obvious. When you look back, and particularly as you recount your experience to us now, it's fairly obvious God was shutting and opening doors. And, um, and his hand was very much upon you and on your progress to this place. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. You're listening to A Mucky Business. We're talking about what a Christian's duty is when it comes to laws that affect families. And we have Miriam Kate MP with us. Miriam, when you entered the House of Commons and you were thinking about the kind of MP you wanted to be, something that's very clearly important to you is the way in which government and politicians view parenting and family life. Why do you feel that way? And what do you think the main issues are? Yes, well, I suppose as a parent, having had the experience of being a very normal mum, balancing all the, the normal things of life and um, just trying to bring up children in, in, in modern Britain, I know what the challenges are. And I think when I arrived in the Commons, I realised actually there aren't many female MPs with school-aged children who've had that very normal experience. Uh, and yet it's how the vast majority of our constituents live. Um, and I, when I was knocking on doors and delivering leaflets during the elections, I had a friend who helped me deliver. She wasn't, she's not political at all, but she said to me, if you do win, please will you do something about this awful situation where children are being sent away from their parents at a very young age, just so that parents can go back to work. And I think there's something um, very true in that. And I do think at the moment we're failing our children and we're seeing parenting as just a matter of contributing to GDP and putting food on the table. And of course, that is important. It is a parent's role to provide for children, but it's so much more than that. And the Bible is very clear about God's identity as a father. That's one of the principal things that the Bible talks about. He's our father, we're his children. And parenthood is about uh, loving your children, bringing them up in your own values, um, helping them to develop character that, that they can lean on for the rest of their lives. And I just think we've we've totally devalued parenthood in, in our society. And we need to get back um, to a position where we see it as, as the fulfilling and vital role 
that it is. And I think one of the things that we could do is to make it easier for parents, normally mothers, but it doesn't have to be, obviously, to spend more time at home with their children when their children are young. That is such an important, those, those early years are so foundational. And at the moment, the way that policy works pulls people into full-time work and we offer up free childcare as the answer to this. Mm. Uh, but I really don't think it is. I don't think that's what most families want. It's certainly not what most mothers want. Polling shows that. Uh, and so I think one of one of the things I feel I'm, I'm here to do is to, to reset that, to help to reset that balance. If we go back, let's say, 50 years, you know, a typical family of you know, 2.5 children and a mum and a dad, it would be normal for the salary of one of the parents, normally the dad, let's be honest, to be sufficient to afford the rent or the mortgage. But today, it pretty much takes two salaries in order to afford a place to live. To what extent is that the cause of the problem? Or is it that politicians and society just uh, look down on family life and consider it to be less important than having a career? Well, I think they're both important. And to some extent, the one feeds the other, because if the cost of living and the price of housing goes up so that you do need two salaries, then clearly people are going to feel pushed into um, working full time because they have to. Uh, and then that in itself drives down the value of, of parenting. So I think, it, you know, we, you can go back and look at the different changes that have led to the position that we're in. And one of the biggest ones, I think, is to is getting rid of the um, uh, transferable tax allowance where uh, married couples could transfer their entire tax allowance between each other. We don't have that at all. Uh, whereas in other countries, they do countries that you wouldn't see as conservative or uh, or, or, or not liberal. Um, but we're, we're quite an outlier in the Western world in the way that we tax people as individuals. And it makes it incredibly expensive uh, for families where one person earns and the other doesn't or where one earns significantly more than the other. So I think that is a, the key factor. But also, we've just got to look at the language we use. And I think. Um, there are some fantastic women in, in politics, there really are, but many of them are very highly educated, have had very fulfilling, well-paid careers. Um, and if, that, if that's your experience, then I can see why it might be worth putting children in childcare or being able to afford a nanny. You know, there are lots of options if you're in that income bucket. But most women don't have a career, they have a job. And you have to ask, uh, for those women, do they is the time with their children more important than um, time climbing the career ladder? And I just think we need to have a bit more representation in Parliament of how most people actually live their lives. Mm. And now, obviously, in, in political circles, particularly over the last 20, 30 years, the kind of phrase family values has had a bit of a bad rap. Why do you think that is? Why do you think people bristle when they hear phrases like that? Well, probably partly because it's associated with what you might see as quite a patriarchal or restrictive society um, and this kind of image of, of the 1950s or something like that, the people uh, want to get away from. But also, I think, because unfortunately, politicians have talked about it in the past and then, well, as we've very recently seen, um, been shown to not exactly be um, following the, those values themselves. But I think you know, if we look at how Jesus talked about these things, he, he didn't um, he didn't get rid of 
the law in a sense, you know, the way that God wants us to live our lives, what he created marriage and families for. But at the same time, he was full of forgiveness. Um, he was incredibly approachable and loving to people, whatever their situation. And I think there is a middle way here where we can encourage strong families, stable relationships, uh, encourage people to have the, those kind of structures that they can rely on again, but not in any way excluding or judging people who, for whatever reason, their families don't fit that model. And, and I think there, there is a way. It's just finding the language. And as politicians, we're sometimes frightened to talk about these things because we're going to be pigeonholed as socially conservative or you're in this camp. But I really want to find a new way of talking about it, one that focuses on, on children particularly and what's best for children, um, but that uses the voices of people from across society and not just those who you know hog the airwaves at the moment. Perhaps one of the biggest issues at the moment is how we fund social care going forward. I suppose people live a lot longer these days, but another reason why social care is under so much pressure is that, you know, going back to the time the NHS began, people didn't live so long, but people also, if they did live longer, lived with their family. That's less the case today. Is that something that gives us an opportunity to flag up the importance of family life? Yes, I I do hope that. And I think some of the policies that we could look at to help parents care for their children could actually work at the other end of life if we had tax allowances that recognised unpaid care then that could potentially help people uh, look after elder older relatives but I think it's it's a more complex problem because the problem with social care that we're facing is in the large part due to the huge advances we've seen in life expectancy mm. which in itself is good but you've now got the situation where you've got the people in the middle and in middle age who may have young children and elderly relatives to look after. And that just wasn't the case in previous generations. And people of our age having to work then into their mid, late 60s um, in order to fund long, long retirements. It's a very, very complex problem. I think we're going to have to raise taxes. I don't think there's any um, doubt about that in order to fund more care. But I do think a community answer is a good one. If we can look after our own elderly relatives, if there's a way of keeping people in our homes, not living on their own for as long as possible, then then that has to be um, the most compassionate route forward. But we have small houses in this country. We're building smaller houses all the time. We need to find a way of of expanding that and have extended family model more. I don't know how we're going to do that. Um, I think there's some great charities out there who are modeling some of this stuff. Mm. Um, But yeah, I think that I think the, the kind of family centered model has to be part of the approach. Miriam, it's been an absolute pleasure. I think we said before we started talking, this would fly by, <laughs> flown by. Um, it's a real blessing to talk to you. Thank you for everything you do for raising massively important issues in, in such a, a wise and thoughtful way. Uh, have a wonderful day. Thank you very much for giving us your time. Thank you, Tim. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. This is your chance to ask me anything about being a Christian in politics. It could be ethical, political or even personal. And this week, we've got a question from Chris in Ipswich. We saw this week in the news that a Jewish man was abused twice in the space of an hour in London because of his appearance. And that his brother was also targeted because he looked obviously Jewish, according to the news. Um, I wonder what your thoughts are, Tim, on how we move forward as a country to try and just stamp this kind of behaviour out from people and to stop these incidents happening. Well, Chris, despicable uh, events that you describe and that many of us will have seen, we can, I guess, make all sorts of guesses as to 
what's fueled it, whether it's um, an imbalanced reporting of the situation in Israel and Palestine, or whether it's something else that we don't see so easily. What we do know is that racism and violence take different forms, but they're not anything new. And it's a reminder that we as a community need to be permanently vigilant about making sure we stamp out uh, violence and racism. And in particular, the scourge, the age old scourge of anti-Semitism. It's a reminder that the work of the Holocaust Educational Trust is far from done. And as we come to the stage where many of the survivors of the Holocaust are no longer with us, and the last of those um, will soon uh, not be with us, their work becomes all the more important. In my community, you know, Westmoreland and Lonsdale, a significantly less diverse community than, than London, where these awful incidents took place. I was told by the Board of Deputies of British Jews a few years ago that the census revealed the grand total of 56 Jewish people in my entire constituency. You know, there are uh, small hamlets bigger than, than that. And yet, for a few months in 1945, that figure was much larger. Because after um, the horrors of the death camps were revealed after um, the end of the war, um, a group of 350 children, teenage boys, um, came from the death camps, many of them from Auschwitz, uh, and were resettled on the banks of Lake Windermere. And they bear the name of the Windermere boys. And they went on to have all sorts of different lives. Most of them remain in the United Kingdom. One of them, Ben, ben Healthcott, competed for the UK in the Olympics and for England in the Commonwealth Games. For our area, which is not very diverse, what I find uh, really uplifting about that is that in our schools, particularly when it comes to remembrance time, um, our children are taught about the Windermere boys, about their experience and about the welcome they had in Windermere. And I think that part of the benefit of that is that our not particularly diverse community is reminded of what being a good, decent citizen looks like and accepting uh, other people. And so I think we need to be reminded of what we can be as our best as a country, um, whilst always being utterly intolerant of violence and racism, remembering that the charge to love our neighbour is absolutely 100% universal. Well, as we come to the end of this week's Amoki Business, let's join together and pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for those you have ordained to run our country um, and we pray for them to be given wisdom. We pray especially for Boris Johnson, our Prime Minister, Sajid Javid, our Health Secretary and the senior medical and scientific advisors on whom they rely. We're moving towards now on the 19th of July, it would appear, a loosening of restrictions and we pray that uh, there'll be great wisdom uh, given and clarity given um, and courage given to our leaders so that the decisions they take are in the interests of everybody in this country and that they are put into practice in a way which is consensual. Lord, we don't want to see our country divided with people having rows about mask wearing or not mask wearing. We want people to love their neighbours, think about their neighbours' safety and well-being, and we want our country to emerge from this crisis more united than it went into it um, so we do pray lord that um, you would bless us in our churches as we move towards um, unlocking may there be wise choices made about um, the extent to which you know 
online meetings they'll continue in some form but may we um when we do find ourselves allowed to sing again indoors may we do so um with a real vigor and a joy um that comes from having been delivered through this crisis by your almighty hand and we lift all these things up to you in the name of your precious son jesus christ amen Next week, we'll be joined by my near constituency neighbour and friend, Kat Smith, the Labour MP for Lancaster and Fleetwood. Until then, I'm Tim Farham. Thank you very much for listening. You can listen to the podcast of this programme online by searching for A Mucky Business. Don't forget, if you have any questions you'd like to put to Tim in a future show, email farron at premier.org.uk.